Hello. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Trying to beat me. I do. I try to beat you. <laughs> All right. Well, welcome back. Uh, this is The Weirdest Thing. I'm Scotty Milder. I'm Amelia Umpuero, and we are your co-hosts. We're going to talk to you about the weirdest stuff we found on the internet. Various things. We talked about this last week. Lucid dreams, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, yeah. And we've got some, we've got some, I think, some cool stories for you this week. Yeah, I think so. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see after. Yeah. So this is a kind of another musical themed episode. Um, and this is sort right. of a, a musical mysteries episode. Yes. So I think our uh, other musical one was the was the like the death metal murders, right? Yeah. I mean, we yeah. And then and you murder, did murder ballads. ballads. Yeah. I feel like okay. We've well, we also did. You talked about uh, why am I forgetting the name of the song? The Sam Cooke song. To, oh, right. I did talk about change is going to come. We, we mm-hmm. also did the Voyager Golden Record and most mysterious song on the internet. Yeah, so we've done a few. Musicals. We've done a couple, but here this this is still a little different. Some new stuff for you all. Yeah. So I am going to tell the story of Robert Johnson, the famous, or some might say infamous blues performer. And I'm going to try to answer the question of whether he actually did sell his soul to the devil. Brilliant. Take it away. So here we go. So my sources this week, Wikipedia, of course, an article from NPR by a guy named Joel Rose called Robert Johnson at 100 Still Dispelling Myths. Mm. And then a book by Elijah Wald called Escaping the Delta, Robert Johnson and the Invention of the Blues. Okay. So Robert Johnson was born May 8th, 1911. Uh, This stuff always blows my mind because I'll read about these. I'm like, he was three years younger than my grandfather, which is (laughs) <laughs> insane to me mm-hmm. uh, but he was born may 8th 1911 so this saturday actually will be his would have been his 110th birthday happy birthday happy birthday robert johnson uh he was born in hazelhurt mississippi his mother was julia major dodds and his father this is kind of interesting his father was noah johnson but he didn't find that out until later i couldn't find a whole lot about this part of the story so i'm just mm-hmm. going to speculate a little wildly but julia <laughs> fantastic yeah <laughs> That's what we do here. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't find out any information, so I'm just going to, you know, make make up some hot goss. So, and the reason I'm saying this is she was married to a guy named Charles Dodds. He was a prosperous landowner and furniture maker. And she and Charles Dodds actually had 10 children before Robert came along. Mm. Um, That's so many kids. Yeah, that's, that's a ton of kids. Did they uh, did they all survive? I believe so. I didn't look wow. too deeply into it. I think I read somewhere that he was the the Robert was the first of the siblings to die. I could be wrong about that. Wow. Okay. But I but I do believe I saw that somewhere. Okay. So Charles Dodds, his what he thought was his father, but actually his stepfather. He was this prosperous landowner, furniture maker in Hazelhurst, Mississippi. But he was actually forced out of Hazelhurst by a lynch mob. And this is a typical story. Uh, he had a conflict with some white landowners. They didn't like him and they forced him out. They didn't kill him, but he did have to kind of leave sort of under cover of night, it sounds like. Julia stayed in Hazelhurst for a while, but not long after she followed her husband to Memphis. At the time, Robert was 
a little baby. Okay. Charles Dodds had named changed his name to Charles Spencer. So Robert actually grew up with the name Robert Spencer. He lived in Memphis for roughly nine years, and he attended the Carnes Avenue Colored School. Uh, and just to is reiterate, <laughs> this is not me calling it that. That's the that was the actual name. There's another quote in here. I'm going to have to qualify into some. Okay, more. thank you. Um, <laughs> but it was the Carnes Avenue Colored School. It was there that he kind of first developed his love of blues and popular music. Mm-hmm. And one thing that's interesting about Robert Johnson is he's really associated with Delta blues. And I'll talk a little bit about what that is here in a second. Okay. But he was a very versatile musician and actually could play kind of any style of music. Um, nice. And he and he would kind of do what it took to get the crowd going and you know play all the kind of popular standards. I mean, this was one thing that did kind of set him apart from other blues musicians of the time because he had this kind of cosmopolitan big city influence on him. Mm-hmm. Most of the blues musicians were really coming from rural areas of the South. So he was able to kind of bring that like his city perspective into his music. Was he self-taught? I'm going to get to that. Okay. <laughs> That's actually a very important part of the story. So brilliant. Ah, uh-huh. okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not sure what happened to Charles Dodds slash Spencer. He might have passed away or they might have gotten divorced. But by 1920, Julia, Robert's mother, had remarried. She'd married a guy named Will Dusty Willis. He was a sharecropper in Lucas Township, Arkansas. Mm. He was also 24 years younger than Julia which is interesting. Mm -hmm. Get it, Julia. (laughs) So stupid. (laughs) And then they moved kind of right across the river back to Mississippi, and they moved on to the Abbey and Leatherman Plantation. And this was in a town called Commerce, Mississippi. sounds like it was just across the river from this Lucas Township in Arkansas. Mm -hmm. So while in Commerce, Robert, who I believe was, he was sort of like, 11, 12 years old at the time. He became known as Little Robert Dusty, but his legal name was still Robert Spencer. Records indicate that he was in school in 1924 and 1927. So it sounds like he went all the way through high school, which was not necessarily common for, you know, the son of a sharecropper, young black kid in, you know, 1920s rural South. Yeah. Um, And in fact, when you look at his marriage certificate, he he signed his signature with such good penmanship that this kind of suggests he actually had a pretty good education. I'm going to mention this again in a little bit because there's theories about him being illiterate, and I just don't believe that. Right. The evidence does not indicate to me that he was illiterate, but. Yeah. So he, while he was in commerce, he met a guy named Willie Coffey who became his friend. And Willie Coffey later said that even as a kid, Robert was noted around the area as like a very proficient harmonica and jaw harp player but he was not known as a guitarist. That's going to become important as well. Mm -hmm. Now, some point around this time when he was a teenager, his mother told Robert that this Charles Dodds slash Charles Spencer was not his actual father. Um, It's not his biological father and that his father was this uh, Noah Johnson. So this, this is where I say I'm going to wildly speculate a little bit. I mean, she's married. I mean, it just seems pretty clear she had an extramarital affair. Yeah. But at this point, I would have loved to have had more time to look into what Robert's relationship with his stepfather was, Mm -hmm. um, who he believed for most of his life was his actual father. It almost sounds to me like maybe there was some tension there because kind of as soon as he found out that Charles Dodds was not his biological father, he changed his last name to Johnson. So he took this Noah Johnson's last name. Okay. And I don't believe he knew or had ever met Noah Johnson. 
So okay. it just seems to me like he was trying to forge a separate identity from his stepfather. Right. And that name is what he used on this marriage certificate when he married a 16-year-old named Virginia Travis. And before we get too upset about him marrying a 16-year-old, I believe he was 18 or 19 at the time. So <laughs> we're not, we're not, he's, he's not being uh, wildly inappropriate there. Okay, good. Um, unfortunately... Virginia did die in childbirth not long after they got married. Hmm. Now, this maybe plays into the Robert Johnson having sold his soul to the devil idea. Okay. Okay. Uh, so his family, his relatives, like extended family, they talked about Virginia's death as being, quote, divine punishment for Robert because of his decision to sing secular music. Whoa, that's a pretty intense like yeah. accusation to lob at somebody i mean they even equated it to quote selling your soul to the devil well okay i mean so, that seems unnecessary <laughs> it seems a little much to me this comes from a blues researcher a guy named robert mac mccormick mccormick sort of says that he thinks robert kind of like accepted that like and i don't mm-hmm. think it's because he was like i literally sold my soul to the devil but he was a little i think it was just a little bit like fuck you i'm gonna do what i want so if you want to say i sold my soul to the devil like that's what i it. did you wow. know so this may be sort of the start of the idea that he had sold his soul to the devil okay but i'll get back to that because okay. <laughs> there's there's a lot to talk about with that myth okay now around this time Another Delta blues musician, a guy named Sun House, who's very, very well-known blues musician, actually lived until he was 86 years old. He died in 1988. And interestingly, he served 15 years in prison after he killed a guy in self-defense. So he's got his own story. I almost, Mm -hmm. I wanted to dive deeper into Sun House, but I just, I didn't want to like go down a wild tangent there. (laughs) Right. But Sun House, who Robert kind of idolized, it sounds like, you know, Mm -hmm. he was about nine, eight or nine years older than Robert. And he was already sort of established as a Delta blues musician. So Robert would kind of hang around when Sun House moved. He moved to the town of Robinsonville, which is kind of right next door to Commerce, because that's where his own musical partner, a guy named Willie Brown lived. And then Robert started coming around wanting to play with them. And what House said, he said that he remembered Robert Johnson as a, quote, little boy who was a pretty good harmonica player, but like an embarrassingly bad guitarist. (laughs) (laughs) So this is a quote. This is from that NPR article. Uh, This is a quote from Sun House. He says, folks, they come and say, why don't you go out and make that boy put that thing down? He running us crazy. So basically saying like he was so bad that like people were begging Sun House to tell Robert to put the guitar down. Wow. Um, okay. So not long after that, Robert left the area. He went down to Martinsville, Mississippi, which is near where he was born. And there's definitely a theory he may have been looking for this Noah Johnson, who is his biological father. Mm. Um, but while in Martinsville, Robert met and befriended a guy named Ike Zimmerman. And Ike was also a very deeply respected Delta blues musician of the, of the area. And he mm-hmm. ended up teaching Robert essentially how to play guitar. Like he became wow. Robert's good friend. I mean, Robert actually lived with him for a year and basically he taught Robert Johnson everything he knew. Okay. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the Delta blues. What is the Delta blues and just what is the blues? <laughs> yes, um, <laughs> please. So the blues, it's a, it's a musical genre developed in the deep South, kind of around the time of the civil war, maybe a little bit after. And it's really particularly linked to the time period 
after the ending of slavery as kind of like it it grew out of this new freedom that black people Mm. had in the Mm -hmm. south it has its roots in like black american work songs field haulers and spirituals Mm -hmm. so like a couple things that blues music is known for is like its call and response Mm -hmm. pattern specific chord progressions and the use of the blues scale so i'm going to talk a little bit about the blues scale here okay and this is i'm gonna say a bunch of stuff that i don't even entirely understand and i'm gonna try and get off this pretty quick <laughs> great because this is great. a little bit i mean this is a little <laughs> bit like me trying to explain quantum physics to you guys mm-hmm. so the blue scale it's a hexatonic which means six note scale and mm-hmm. it consists of the minor pentatonic scale which is a five note scale mm-hmm. plus a flatted fifth degree of the original heptatonic scale which is seven pitches per octave and that everything i mean i studied music for a long time i was i was a you know i was in high school band and i don't know almost what any of this means great um Blue scales are also known for the use of, quote, blue notes, okay. which are also known as, quote, worried notes. Uh, mm-hmm. And these are notes that are played or sung at a slightly higher or lower pitch than standard. And it's usually the thirds, fifths, or sevenths are played in a flattened pitch. Okay. And if you hear, I remember learning the blues scale when I was a kid, and I loved playing blues scale songs because it does. Like, you have your normal... you know kind of scale and the blue scale it's just got a little like those flattened pitches just make it sound a little darker you know yeah it's possible that this scale might actually trace back to asian musical forms that made their way to Africa and then through the enslavement of black people in Africa made their way to North America. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I didn't follow. I didn't go down that rabbit hole too deep. That was just something I saw on Wikipedia, but I thought that was kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, also this call and response pattern definitely goes back to African music and like okay. African chants and stuff. Blues is also known for quote shuffles and a walking baseline. This creates a trance like rhythm and forms a repetitive effect known as the groove. And if anyone is like me, like a metal head or just a rock fan, like this is deeply important to rock and roll music, which obviously kind of grew out of the blues. Mm-hmm. Early traditional blues consisted of a single line repeated four times. The more common AAB pattern, which is essentially consisting of a line sung over the first four bars, then a repetition of the line over the next four bars, and then a longer line over the last four bars. That kind of grew later, like around the turn of the century. Most blues songs are narrative in structure. So they tell stories. They often describe racial discrimination, poverty, other problems common with black communities of the time and, of course, today. Mm. So, you know, blues is known for like dark lyrics, morose lyrics, but usually kind of sung in a somewhat fun, tongue in cheek, wink, wink sort of way, which is, I think, one of the fun things about the blues is that it's there's there's like a self-awareness to it. And it's it's almost having a little bit of fun with like how bad things can get, you know. (laughs) Okay. Um, Blues really grew in popularity through its presence in, quote, juke joints. So juke joints, I'm sure we've all heard that term. They were usually on the outskirts of town. They were in like a ramshackle or abandoned building or a shed, sometimes in a house. And these were places where like local black sharecroppers, black workers, etc. could get together play music, dance, gamble, drink. They really began to emerge during emancipation and they became very popular because black people were obviously barred from like white 
bars, white dance halls, et cetera, because of Jim Crow laws. So these kind of became like their place, mm-hmm. essentially. Blues stayed pretty isolated within the Southern Black community, but it started to get noticed by some white listeners around the turn of the 20th century. And then they even started to publish blues songs as sheet music around 1908. Okay. Which again is like crazy to me because like you think of blues as just something that's been around forever. They first started publishing blues sheet music the year my grandfather was born. Just Mm. always blows my mind. (laughs) Okay, so what is Delta Blues? So Delta Blues, it's one of the earliest known blues styles. It originated in the Mississippi Delta, and it's considered a variation of country blues. So basically what really characterizes Delta Blues is that it's very minimalistic. There's not usually like a full band, and the dominant instruments are really just guitar, harmonica, and voice. Okay. Um, And then slide guitar, which is more associated with like country and Western music, Mm -hmm. but it's also very much associated with Delta Blues. So record labels started recording blues artists, particularly Delta blues artists, around the 1920s. Now, records had been around since sort of around 1890, but they were really only exclusively marketed to white audiences because records were really like meant to sell the phonograph machine, which were sold in furniture stores. They were expensive. Records were expensive to produce. And then the records, like the records were actually sold in the furniture stores as well. Really, it's just an enticement to buy the record player. Okay. And so it was just the idea was like, well, black people aren't going to have enough money. So why try to sell to black people? But then around the 1920s, the technology sort of changed. It became much cheaper to make record players, phonograph machines, and also to make records. And so they realized there is this whole potential untapped musical market of black listeners. So they started making what they called, quote, race records. These were popular between the 1920s and 1940s. There were really, you know, usually blues, jazz, and gospel musicians. And these were records that were made specifically with black artists to sell to black listeners. But of course, the record labels were white owned. The producers were generally white. So you can imagine didn't necessarily work out that well for the musicians. The The musicians were generally not particularly well compensated, often weren't even acknowledged on the records. Mm-hmm. And they were really given no leverage because they were only given like single record contracts right so it was always kind of held over their head like we can take this away from you at any time right i feel like all of this is what ma rainey's black bottom Mm -hmm. is about like this whole like this specific thing of the creation of music and then who has the rights to that music i mean and and this goes up till today you know i mean i think we mentioned when we were talking about sam cook like it's amazing that even to this day most musicians do not actually own the recordings that's the stupidest thing i've ever heard the dumbest thing ever you know yeah and this was particularly a problem with black artists because black artists just didn't have until like you know the sam cooks and people like that came along they just didn't have the clout to advocate for themselves right so really it was exploitive but the good thing about it is we have all these recordings from blues musicians of the 20s 30s and 40s that wouldn't exist otherwise so it's them on the records but mm-hmm. they're not credited sometimes they're credited sometimes they're not okay um it, was, it sounds like it was real hit and miss okay you know? and were they getting paid for that music they were getting like paid but probably underpaid. pretty yeah okay <laughs> i think okay. it was like a one time here's a few bucks to record this and then all the royalties essentially accrued to the producers and record companies right so freddie spruill is considered the first delta blues artist to have been recorded uh, when his song milk cow blues was recorded in 1926 
listen to my story now, please listen to my song. Can't you imagine how I feel now? I'm wasting my real Newcastle. Other popular Delta blues recordings of the time came from people like Tommy Johnson, who I'm going to mention again in a little bit, mm-hmm. Ishman Bracey, who I'm also going to mention again, Robert Wilkins, Big Joe Williams, Charlie Patton, and of course, eventually Robert Johnson himself. Now, there were a lot of female blues musicians at the time, but they're mostly doing what was called big city blues. And so some of the famous big city blues singers would have been like Ma Rainey, who you just mm-hmm. mentioned. I uh, but there were a few women also recording Delta Blues, like Gishi Wiley, Elvie Thomas, Memphis Minnie, Bertha Lee. Okay. And then even up to this day, you know, contemporary musicians like Bonnie Raitt have cited Delta Blues as being like a big influence. And I don't think you could say like Bonnie Raitt, she does like delta blues but Mm. like i think she was deeply influenced by it okay now the popularity of blues and delta blues in particular and it's interesting when you look at like the different blues subgenres people generally sort of talk about delta blues as like it is like the most pure form of blues okay and i think it's because it is so minimalistic it's a guy with a guitar and a harmonica sitting on a stool playing a song you know the popularity kind of eventually crossed racial lines sort of in the 50s and 60s it sounds like and this of course led to the development of rock and roll and specifically heavy metal Mm. if you listen to early i'm not going to talk too much about this but if you listen to early heavy metal in particular bands like black sabbath led zeppelin they're essentially taking delta blues song structures and putting them with loud guitars you know wow okay yeah like listen to a song like led zeppelin's dazed and confused it's Mm -hmm. a it's a straight up blues song Okay, so let's get back to Robert Johnson. The Sun House has said, you know, he was a really shitty guitar player. Uh-huh. Um, he was young, though. And then he took off. He went He went down to southern Mississippi, maybe to look for his father, befriended this Ike Zimmerman. And then a few years later, he showed back up as a very accomplished guitar player. Hmm. Um, so between 1932 until his death in 1938, he was just on the road constantly it sounds like he was going back and forth between memphis and helena arkansas and then he played like all the little towns in the area okay he even went as far as like chicago texas kentucky even played a few shows up in canada but he was still pretty obscure but he, he was just like your average like road showing on mm. the road living life on the road musician you know Ugh. God. Now, what's interesting, this gets into a little bit of like who Robert Johnson was and the type of person he was. So he had this very large extended family. And mm-hmm. and so when he was kind of in the region, he would often stay with them while he was on the road. But then he would also stay with, quote, female friends. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he never married again after Virginia died. Uh, and but you you said she, ju- she died in childbirth, right? She died in childbirth, yeah. And the child also the, died? Did not survive. Okay. So poor Robert was on his own at this point. Like I said, he never married again, but he did have several long-term relationships with various women. Um, He also like would just seduce women at shows and then be like, can I come stay with you? 
<laughs> and often enough, they'd be like, sure. It sounds like Robert was a real charmer. <laughs> I have not read anything that sounds particularly shady, like he was he was doing anything particularly creepy uh, or creepy or hurting people. But he was he was fucking around. Yeah. Like, a lot. It sounds well, like. you know, I mean, who doesn't love a good musician? Yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, and he was super tall. He had really long fingers. I mean, you know. Ew, <laughs> Scotty. Ah, gross. The fingers are actually going to be important here in a little bit, but <laughs> I, I mean, I get why musically, but ew. <laughs> I, I mainly said that just because I was looking for that reaction from you right there. <laughs> ah. And you delivered. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, he he would like he would seduce women in his shows and then he would like do things like he'd seduce the woman in her show and then be like can i come stay with your family for a while and then the family <laughs> would take him in. so it's just like this guy he just he was a, he was a fucking charmer you know yeah so here's a couple quotes just about like his personality so this is from that elijah wald book he says as for his character everyone seems to agree that while he was pleasant and outgoing in public and private he was reserved and he liked to go his own way didn't write down who said this it was from the wikipedia page it says musicians who knew johnson testified that he was a nice guy and fairly average except of course for his musical talent his weakness for whiskey and women and his commitment to the road mm. and then this is from a blues musician a guy named johnny shines he says robert was a very friendly person even though he was sulky at times you know and i hung around robert for quite a while one evening he disappeared he was kind of a peculiar fellow robert would be standing up playing someplace playing like nobody's business at about that time it was a hustle with him as well as a pleasure and money be coming from all directions but robert just pick up and walk off and leave you standing there playing and he wouldn't see robert no more maybe in two or three weeks so he sounds like he's just like he's robert's just kind of meeting to or marching to the beat of his own drummer you know? yeah yeah doing his own thing he's just doing his thing so his typical like process when he was on the road is he would arrive in a town and if he was supposed to play that night he would start out the day he'd he'd find a street corner usually in front of a barbershop or a restaurant he'd just play for tips so he's basically a busker and this kind of taught him like he was known for writing these dark complex songs and this is going to kind of play a little bit into the legend of, of mm -hmm. him a little bit but he rarely actually played them live he kind of learned what the crowd wanted and they wanted to hear well-known popular songs not even blues songs he like i said he was very versatile he could kind of play in any style mm -hmm. um he was also able to play by ear so he could listen to a song and after hearing it once or twice he was essentially able to play it so he could get up on stage and sort of take any song as a request, blues, jazz, country music, whatever people wanted. And like I said, he was a charmer. So he was known. He just made friends, established ties wherever he went. In 1936, Robert decided he wanted to record. Mm -hmm. um, he saw a lot of his contemporaries were putting out singles. Some of them were getting pretty successful. So he went down to Jackson, Mississippi. He hunted down a talent broker named H.C. Spear. So this H.C. Spear, he was, he owned a record store actually okay. um, but then he would kind of hook up musicians with record labels and with producers so he went and found this hc spear spear then put him in touch with record label salesmen who then introduced robert to a producer named don law and don law sounds like produced all of his known recordings he recorded 29 songs in his lifetime mm. so he made his first recordings in san antonio from november 23rd to 25th 1936 in room 414 of the gunter hotel 
so they had taken a room. Uh, Brunswick Records was the record label. They took a hotel room and just kind of tricked it out to be like a makeshift temporary recording studio. Mm-hmm. During that session, he played 16 songs. And then he would do like an alternate take for most of them. And what's cool about the Robert Johnson recordings is unlike a lot of blues musicians who they would record stuff, but a lot of these recordings are lost to history or they would only do one take. Yeah. He did multiple takes of his songs and most of them sounds like survive you can actually compare like his approach on different versions of songs which is oh interesting and this is obviously like before mixing and all that kind of stuff right like they're recording it like right onto the record i think yeah that's my understanding is they set up a microphone record it right to wax yeah one track and done and if you listen to robert johnson's songs i mean you can tell they, they're old scratchy right yeah <laughs> tinny, you know it's that old mm-hmm. blues recording kind of sound but you can definitely hear the talent come through even in these scratchy old recordings now one thing that is sort of a part of the robert johnson urban legend is that when he was playing in this hotel room the story went around that he performed facing the wall okay and this kind of became evidence people talk about oh he was actually a really shy person okay if he wasn't on stage he was just really really shy Mm-hmm. But a lot of people are like, no, that's that's not true. I mean, th- this was kind of a myth that started when they re-released a bunch of his recordings in the early 60s on an album called King of the Delta Blue Singers. Mm-hmm. That liner notes and like they were mostly inaccurate. So this kind of like started the story okay. how shy he was and he couldn't look at anybody as he was playing. But really, this was like a pretty common technique for a recording artist. It was called corner loading. Yeah. You'd play into the corner of a room and it just the acoustics were better. Yeah. Not, you know, it's not bouncing off the walls and everything. Yeah. This is that Elijah Wald. It's actually not from his book. It's from that NPR article. He says, there were pre-war blues musicians who played guitar better than Johnson, as well as musicians who sang better. But Wald says that unlike most of them, Johnson learned to play from listening to radio and records. Robert Johnson certainly was very conscious of what a hit record sounded like. If you listen to something like Come On In My Kitchen, he's singing very quietly. And he actually has a moment when he says, can't hear you, the wind blowing. He whispers it and then plays this very quiet riff. It's going to be raining, Andrew. That never would have worked on a street corner or a Mississippi juke joint, but it sounds great on records. Mm. And, and in fact, there's really no evidence that he played at the wall at all. This sounds like it was something that, I mean, it's possible. Like I said, you know, it was a common technique, mm-hmm. um, but really there's like no evidence of it. So it's just kind of an urban legend, which mm. is like a lot of the Robert Johnson story is urban legend. Right. So some of the songs he recorded in this session were some of his more famous ones, like Come On In My Kitchen, which I just mentioned, Kind Hearted Woman, and then, of course, most infamously, The Crossroad Blues. Mm-hmm. I went to the crossroad, well down on my knees. Sounds 
so this is from Elijah Wald's Escaping the Delta book. He says he produces his most imaginative vocal so far. He's talking about the song 3220 Blues. He says he produces his most imaginative vocal so far, coming up with a different way to present each verse. He sings one low, one high, and then another simply talks the words. A very special voice hit you very well. The combination of the regular propulsive rhythm and the conversational humorous inflections of his delivery have a clarity and excitement that would have been instantly appealing coming off a jukebox. It is no surprise that the record company chose this song as his second single. So the first songs released, like I said, this 3220 Blues, also the song Terraplane Blues and Last Fair Deal Gone Down. Terraplane Blues in particular was uh, sort of a modest hit. It sold about 5,000 copies, mostly throughout the South, kind of this region. And these are likely the only of his recordings that he actually himself lived to hear uh, or from this session. Wow. So the following year, June 19th to 20th, 1937, he went to Dallas for another recording session. This was also produced by Don Law, and it was in a makeshift studio on the third floor of the Vitagraph building. During the session, he recorded a lot of the songs he's more known for that kind of play into like the dark legend around him. Because mm-hmm. this is where he recorded things like Hellhound on My Trail, Me and the Devil Blues, things like that. <laughs> <Okay>. uh, <laughs> So a lot of these are his more somber and introspective songs. These are not the songs he was known for performing live. Now, he would also do two takes of these songs, and most of the recordings survive, so you have different versions of the songs, which is cool. This is a quote from the Elijah Wald book. He says, This time, he was fully prepared. Where the first sessions had found him speeding up and rearranging songs because they were too long to fit on a 78, this time his pieces were perfectly timed for recording, and the alternate takes were virtually identical. The songs were all carefully composed, and he had at least as many as were needed. So this time he recorded no old Delta favorites or songs compiled on the spot out of other people's verses. It has sometimes been said that Johnson carried a little notebook with him and wrote lyrics in it, although other people recalled him as virtually illiterate. If he did not write down his songs, he had an extraordinary facility for making up and remembering cohesive compositions. In any case, in the seven months since his studio debut, he had devoted a lot of attention to composing and had also become a noticeably more polished and professional recording artist. And like I said, I'm not convinced of this idea that he was illiterate because like I said, if you look back, it looks like he did go through school. Yeah. I mean, I guess we don't know for sure, but it just, that doesn't. That doesn't strike me as that. Yeah, it doesn't quite track. This is another quote from the Elijah Wahlberg. He says, judging by his new lyrics, he had also become a good deal more somber and introspective. Mm -hmm. The second sessions included very little upbeat material. No Sweet Home Chicago and certainly nothing like The Red Hot. There were some seductive invitations and some songs patterned on current hit formulas, but he often followed the model of Crossroad Blues, limiting the dark wanderings of a traveler in an unfriendly world. Mm. Um, So 11... 
songs were released as singles the following year. And then of the 29 recordings that were made by him, more than half of them come from this Dallas session. Okay. Okay. So let's talk about his death. Okay. Unfortunately, he died the following year. Uh. He died August 16th, 1938. He was 27 years old. Oof. And he died near Greenwood, Mississippi. Nobody knows exactly how he died. His death was not even reported publicly. So to most people at the time, it just seemed like he had vanished. It wasn't until 30 years later when a musicologist named Gail Dean Wardlow found his death certificate while researching Robert's life. So the death certificate only lists the date and location. There's no cause of death listed. What? No autopsy was done. And it sounds like like at this time in the South, finding a dead black man by the side of the road was just considered kind of commonplace. So yeah, it's pretty heartbreaking. And that's where they, that's where he was found? Like on the side of the road? road. Yeah. There's a lot of theories about how how he died. So one Mm -hmm. theory, I didn't go too deep into this. Um, I think this was just from Wikipedia. It says he might've had congenital syphilis. This may have contributed to his death. I Mm -hmm. believe genital syphilis means you're born with it. So it's passed on from a parent. Mm. Um, But I don't think that's like confirmed in any way. Okay. Now back to the long fingers. Mm-hmm. Uh, medical practitioner named David Connell. This was in 2006. He suggested that if you look at photos of Robert, he was very tall, very slender, and he had these unnaturally, quote unquote, unnaturally long fingers. Mm-hmm. This may suggest that he had something called Marfan syndrome. Which, which we is, talked about in yeah. the Washington Irving episode. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, Marfan sy- syndrome, it's, I believe, a genetic condition, and it tends to make people be very tall. It's a, it's a disorder of like the connective tissue. I believe. Did they um, say Lincoln had that? They they think he might have. Okay. Um, that's a theory. I don't think that's ever been confirmed. Okay. But if you look at someone with Marfan syndrome, they have very, it's very distinctive features, you know, tend to be very long and slender, kind of long arms, very long fingers. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, Marfan syndrome, because it's a disorder of the connective tissue, Mm. also causes problems with the connective tissue in the heart. And one common cause of death for people with Marfan syndrome is aortic dissection, which basically means your aortic artery just tears loose of the heart. Jesus. This is what killed uh, John Ritter, if you guys remember. That's right. Yeah. It's, it's a very, it's scary. Like that's one of those conditions when you read about it, it terrifies me because it just, it happens fast. I don't think there's much you can do about it. Yeah. So again, this is total speculation, but it's possible if he did have this Marfan syndrome, he may have Mm -hmm. been just walking down the road, had an aortic dissection and collapsed. But of course, because we don't know. Mm Mm-hmm. All sorts of fun stories about yes, how he may have died. So, this is where the lore comes in. Yeah, let's get into the wild rank speculation here. Great. So he'd been playing in the area sort of a few weeks before his death. He had played at a country dance about 50 miles south of Greenwood. Mm-hmm. So the story goes that he was murdered by the jealous husband of a woman with whom he had been flirting. This kind of started with a blues musician named Sonny Boy Williamson. He, he had been there and he said that Robert was flirting with a married woman at the dance and that she gave him a bottle of whiskey that, that had been poisoned by her husband. Mm. Uh, th- this story is not particularly believable to me <laughs> okay. Okay. because the way Sonny Boy Williamson tells the story is that Robert Johnson took the bottle and Williamson says he knocked it out of Robert's hand 
And then he like scolded him and said, you know, never drink from a bottle that you didn't open yourself. Okay. And Robert turned to him and said, don't ever knock a bottle out of my hand. <laughs> okay. And then the woman came, comes back and is like, I've got another bottle for you. And mm. he took it, drank it. It was also poisoned. And okay. That's all she wrote. So she's just got a satchel full of poisoned bottles yeah. of liquor. And it's not clear to me from this story whether it's like she supposedly knew and her husband right. had put her up to it, you know, or like yeah. she's trying to, you know, do the Mary Shelley on top of Washington Irving thing here. <laughs> uh, be like, what's up? Robert Johnson and her husband yeah. sees it and is like, why don't you give him this bottle that I've laced with strychnine or whatever? Um, yeah, this all seems a little much. It, it sounds a little much to me. Yeah. But according to the story, he started feeling sick that night and... I think this all still comes from Sonny Boy Williamson mm-hmm. helping back to his room. Then over the next few days, he just got worse and worse and he ultimately died from a convulsion. And then I'm guessing if you believe this story, then Sonny Boy Williamson and whoever dumped his body by the side of the road. Okay. Um, so it doesn't reflect that well on Sonny Boy. Interestingly, this Mac McCormick, this musicologist, he has claimed that he tracked down the man who murdered Robert. And actually got him to confess in an interview, but said that he would not give the man's name. So again, you know, I, mm. I leave I leave it to all of you. Okay. To decide what you think of this story. Now, here's a quote from the NPR article. It says, the timing was tragic. Legendary Columbia Records talent scout John Hammond wanted to book Johnson at Carnegie Hall for the landmark, quote, Spirituals to Swing concert in 1938. This uh, Hammond was also the driving force behind the first LP reissue of Johnson's music in 1961. So, like, if mm-hmm. he lived, like, this could have been a big breakout moment for him. Mm-hmm. But by the time they actually put out this album in 1961, he was so obscure that Columbia didn't even put a picture of him on the cover of the album. Oh. Yeah. Years later, a woman named Cornelia Jordan, and I couldn't figure out how many years later. She was the LaFleur County Registrar. She did her own investigation into his death, and it sounds like she was ordered to by the State Director of Vital Statistics. Mm -hmm. So she added a note to his birth certificate. And this is where I need to give another warning. Like, some of the language in here is not what we would consider appropriate today for referring to black people Mm -hmm. Um, it's not the n-word but so the quote is i talked with the white man on whose place this negro died and i also talked with a negro woman on the place the plantation owner said the negro man seemingly about 26 years old came from tunica two or three weeks before it's another town kind of in the area two or three weeks before he died to play banjo at a negro dance given there on the plantation he stayed in the house with some of the negroes saying he wanted to pick cotton The white man did not have a doctor for this Negro, as he had not worked for him. He was buried in a homemade coffin furnished by the county. The plantation owner said it was his opinion that the man died of syphilis. Now, what? How the the plantation owner? Like, what the fuck does he know? Yeah. So, if this is where the syphilis story comes from, I would also like put that put that where it belongs. The version of the story that's the most interesting to me is the Marfan syndrome one, Mm -hmm. because that actually would kind of make sense. Yeah. It's also possible he was murdered. You know, this whole story of the poisoned whiskey bottle doesn't seem that credible to me, but a young black man alone in the rural South at night. Yeah. It's not, it's not inconceivable to me that someone killed him. I guess my only thing regarding that now is that nowhere anywhere is there anything about any type of wounds now. Right. It doesn't make it, that doesn't make it impossible, but it, yeah, because it, Seems like if there had been a gunshot, uh, you know, blunt force right. trauma, something like that, they might have said it. Um, yeah. but, but they also may, may not have bothered writing it down, you know. 
That's completely and true. If, yeah. And if he had been strangled or something, you know, that maybe would show up, maybe wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, it's just, there's, there's no way to know. No one knows yeah. how he died, but what we do know is that he died in 1938. Really? No one knew that he died oh. until the 1960s when his uh, fame started to grow. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about the question that everyone wants to have answered. Okay. Did Robert Johnson sell his soul to the devil? Yes. I'm coming down official stance right now. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> okay. Dang. okay. Um, so the legend goes that Robert, when he was a young man, still living in rural Mississippi, this probably would have been after he met Sunhouse mm-hmm. and sucked as a guitar player. He really wanted to be a blues musician. So he talked to someone and I couldn't figure out who the someone supposedly was, but mm-hmm. someone told him that he needed to take his guitar to a crossroads near Dockery Plantation at midnight. There are like a dozen places that people try to claim is the crossroads. Is the crossroads, okay. Yeah. So when he was at this crossroads, he was approached by a large black man who took his guitar and tuned it for him. And then the the black man played a few songs on it and then gave the guitar back to Robert. Of course, this was the devil. And once he gave the guitar back to Robert, this gave Robert his sudden mastery of the instrument. Now, it seems like the legend kind of started with this Tommy Johnson, who was another blues musician. He told the story to Ishman Bracey and his brother Liddell. Ishman Bracey, I also mentioned mentioned before, was a mm-hmm. very well-known Delta blues musician. And then the Bracey brothers kind of spread the story. So in one of the versions that Liddell later told, the meeting actually did not happen at a crossroads, but it happened at a graveyard instead. This kind of mirrors earlier stories about Ike Zimmerman. The story goes that Ike Zimmerman actually learned to play the guitar while sitting on tombstones at midnight in a local graveyard. Okay. Are all these, are all these musicians black? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. At the time, pretty much anyone playing the blues would have been black. Okay. Yeah. I'm just, you know, I, I, you know, I'm just wondering. I mean, I just want to make sure that it's not a bunch of white folks being like, there's no way this black guy could be that good at guitar unless it was well, through the help of the devil. I'm going to get I'm there. sure we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's a, it's a real question because Zimmerman is a Jewish last name and actually mm-hmm. didn't look up. So I'm assuming Ike Zimmerman was black. If I'm wrong about that, I'll correct that next week. Everyone else I looked up was black, but I don't actually think I looked up Ike Zimmerman. Ike Zimmerman was known to be Robert Johnson's main guitar teacher. He's the guy that Robert Johnson went and lived with for a year and was also his, probably his biggest influence. So okay. there may be some conflation of stories happening here. But the legend, of course, developed over time. It's been chronicled by many biographers. Elijah Wald sees this as kind of really taking off this legend really taking off when his music was rediscovered by white fans in the 1960s mm-hmm. but Sunhouse added to the legend himself when he claimed it was the reason for robert's like super fast mastery of the guitar mm-hmm. because again he's the guy who said robert johnson was a shitty shitty guitar player right i have to wonder if some of this is like Sunhouse, like mm-hmm. having a little bit of sour grapes like how did this kid who sucked get better than me Right. Um, I don't know. <laughs> Sunhouse, he told the story to a historian named Pete Welding, who then reported it in an article in Downbeat Magazine in 1966. Seems like Sunhouse might have regretted telling this story because he would never repeat it after that. But the way he had told the story, in, in one way you read the story is it's like, you know, Robert Johnson, he sucked at guitar, he went down south, and then just a few months later, he came back and he was this like, great guitar player. Mm-hmm. But in fact, it was like at least two years that he was down there working with Ike Johnson. Okay. 
so more time to learn the guitar. Yeah. Especially too, because it's not like he's like, oh, I'm I'm working on my guitar lessons, like on the weekends when I'm not working. Like he probably had time to dedicate. Yeah. Sounds like this this was his life. Yeah. So the story just continued to grow and grow. People would add details. So one of the details that got added later is that the devil didn't tune his guitar, but the devil actually showed up and gave him a guitar. Blue scholar named Bruce Conforth, he wrote in Living Blues magazine that Ike and Robert did actually practice their guitar in various cemeteries, mainly because it was quiet at night in the cemetery. Mm -hmm. No one would bother you. Yeah. I know people who've hung out in, in cemeteries. Right. Doesn't I mean, mean they have anything to do with the devil. I've got to say, like, if you're not someone who's super easily spooked, mm-hmm. um, cemeteries can be incredibly peaceful places. Yeah. So it makes sense to me that they would choose that location. I don't think it necessarily has to have anything to do with the devil. And like I said, Robert lived with Ike for about a year. Ike essentially taught him how to play guitar and then actually continued playing with Johnson. Uh, He went back up north when Johnson kind of returned to like the Delta area and kept playing for him. And then also sort of sounds like he was older and was just sort of trying to look out for him. Mm -hmm. This is kind of interesting. Some people have interpreted this devil figure, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, is actually not really the Christian devil, but it might be sort of a version of Papa Legba. Okay. So Papa Legba is a figure that's very important in Haitian voodoo and ah. African folk religions. Okay, okay. And Legba is a little more like what we would think of where we are in the Southwest as like coyote. Like, oh, not, not evil, but kind of a trickster. You okay, know? yeah. Or maybe even like a little bit Cocapelli, because one thing, so... In the African nations of Benin, Nigeria, and Togo, Legba is viewed as a young and virile trickster figure, often horned and phallic, which is why I think of Coco Pelli. His shrine is usually located at the gate of the village or out Mm -hmm. in the countryside. Um, Mm, Okay. Legba is deeply associated with the crossroads because he is said to stand at a spiritual crossroads and he gives or denies permission to speak with the spirits. He's said to speak all human languages and is known as a facilitator in communication, speech, and understanding. Interesting. Um, Haitian voodoo obviously has deep, deep, deep roots in the rural American South. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense to me that these things kind of would combine and mix together. Yeah. So this is, you know, it's it's an interesting theory. No one really knows. Here's a quote from a folklorist named Harriam Hyatt kind of expanding on the Papa Ligba theory. He says, the blues and the blues singer has really special powers over women, especially. It is said that the blues singer could possess women and have any woman they wanted. And so when Robert Johnson came back, having left his community as an apparently mediocre musician with a clear genius in his guitar style and lyrics, people said he must have sold his soul to the devil. And that fits with this old African association with the crossroads where you find wisdom. You go down to the crossroads to learn, and in his case, to learn in a Faustian pact. You sell your soul to become the greatest musician in history. Let me just comment on this a little bit. I mean, it's true that this is like the archetype of the blues singer is like having these like special seductive powers over women, mm-hmm. etc. And it makes sense to me that this would play into the legend of Robert Johnson. Right. But I think we should just take that with a grain of salt. Like blues singers don't necessarily actually have power. Like supernatural powers <laughs> over women just want to make clear sorry to disappoint everybody <laughs> uh any aspiring blues musicians that may be listening to this podcast Getting uh, ideas. 
<laughs> if you're doing this to meet chicks or dudes or whatever your preference is, just know that you won't have any supernatural assistance in that yeah. area. Just, just, um, just be like Robert and learn, learn to charm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, here, here's a, <laughs> here's a quote from a blue scholar named David Evans that is kind of taking the piss out of the Papa Legba theory. Uh-huh. So he says there are several serious problems with the crossroads myth. The devil imagery found in the blues is so thoroughly familiar from Western folklore and nowhere do blues singers ever mention Legba or any mm. other African deity in their songs or other lore. The actual mm. African music connected with cults of Legba and similar trickster deities sounds nothing like the blues, but rather features polyrhythmic percussion and choral call and response singing. I'm going to put a pin in that too, because he's, he's trying to draw this like direct line. And I'm like, that's not how these synchristic folk religions and movements work. Mm -hmm. You know, things like things filter in, but just because it's not like literal African folk music that they were playing doesn't mean the cultural memory of these things that have existed in the south trickle doesn't trickle in in some way right so it's believable to me that the story of robert johnson meeting the devil at the crossroads whether you believe it or not has roots in this like frankly meet this meeting the devil at the crossroads stories exist mm -hmm. throughout the rural south and have right. for a long long time right so you know this could be just something that's being grafted onto the Robert Johnson story that pops up in other places as well. Yeah. You know? the, this guy needs to sit down nerd. Because yeah. I mean, it's, kind of it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a little too intellectual when we're talking about somebody selling a soul to the devil. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I would say both of these guys should take a seat because like, like what it boils down to is we don't know. We don't know if it has something to do with the Papa Legba thing. Yeah. We don't know that it doesn't. It, to me, it's, it's believable and I find it interesting. Mm -hmm. um but you know we don't know it's just how these stories grow organically is like you know there's no predicting yeah how a story is going to develop yeah um so there are like tourist attractions all over the south you know pointing to this is the crossroads where robert johnson sold his soul mm -hmm. like for instance rosedale mississippi the locals there claim he sold his soul at the intersection of highways one and eight so okay. it sounds like just wherever you go in the south someone's gonna be like that's where robert johnson sold his soul okay do we believe that robert johnson sold his soul I'm going to come down on no. I'm right. actually going to come down on a pretty hard no. Okay. And here's why. Okay. <laughs> for one, well, there's two reasons why. One, okay. for me, I do not believe in the devil. So I'm not inclined to believe people sell their souls to the devil. Can, can I ask you a question about this? Because you've mm -hmm. stated on here that you are agnostic. Yeah. So, but, and, but rather you do not believe in the devil. I would say I don't believe in the devil any more than I believe in a God. So I leave room for there being something. Okay. I'm probably more inclined to believe something like Papa Legba than okay. I am the actual devil. <laughs> you okay. Know? Right, 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 right. Um, but if it is Papa Legba, it wouldn't be that he sold a soul to the devil. It would be he, right. Papa Legba gave him wisdom. You know? Right. Here's where I think it's problematic, though. Okay. This, this reminds me of Gobekli Tepe. Uh-huh. In that, yes, the stories of Robert Johnson selling his soul to the devil do seem to originate from some of his contemporary blues musicians. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them might have been somewhat jealous of him. Mm -hmm. Like there's particularly with the sun house, like there's a cattiness to how he talks about Robert that mm -hmm. I find a little like might be an agenda there. 
This is also this type of folklore, like I said, is super common throughout the South. Mm -hmm. Not even just with Black communities. Like I've talked about my grandfather, my non-Jewish grandfather, born 1908 in Oklahoma. He told stories about people selling their souls to the devil, things like that. Right. He believed that. He was a deeply religious Southern Baptist man. He believed this stuff. This is just kind of in the like air in the South. Mm-hmm. So it's not surprising to me that some of these musicians like would just kind of go to this. Yeah. It's also, it's just, it makes for a better story. Right. And you know, right. if you're a blues singer, you're a storyteller, you know? Right. Um, where I get uncomfortable with it is where the popularity of the story really seems to take off in the sixties when he's discovered by wide audiences. Yeah. And this is where it reminds me of Gobekli Tepe, where like a lot of this supernatural type or or alien type stories about Gobekli Tepe do kind of seem to come from a lot of white people who just don't want to give people of color credit for having been able to do something. Right. And I'm like, maybe Robert just like he realized he sucked probably because Sunhouse sure sounds like Sunhouse probably told him he sucked. Right. And he really looked up to Sunhouse and maybe he just decided, you know what, I'm going to get good at this. And he right. spent a couple of years working with Ike Zimmerman, playing in graveyards, doing what they had to do. And he just, through hard work, dedication, talent, he just got good. Right. And maybe he had some, you know, maybe he had some innate skill that just needed to be honed. And maybe he had some physical advantages, those long fingers, you know, mm-hmm. that made him a quick study. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah, it is. It is that thing of like, just because, you know, white civilization can't figure out an explanation for it doesn't mean that there isn't a perfectly logical explanation for it. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. and to me, it's just, it's like the people who built Gobekli Tepe, maybe they just worked really hard to figure out how to build that shit. Yeah. Maybe they just knew, maybe they just were, you know, maybe they were just problem solvers. Exactly. Okay. Relax. And maybe, you know, it, it like people talk, I'm not a basketball fan. I don't know much about basketball, uh-huh. but I do know everyone talks about LeBron James is mm-hmm. one of the greatest basketball players of all time. And one thing mm-hmm. I do know about LeBron is that people talk about, he studies the game scientifically Mm -hmm. i think you and i have talked about this like we have this comes up in our talent discussion a lot yeah yeah exactly like you know lebron james is known to like he watches tapes to see like here's what i did wrong here oh here's how the other players like here's their weak spots he does something insane like he throws a thousand three-pointers you know like before they start practice like he it's it's something insane the guy is methodical methodical about trying to solve the problem of basketball. So there's no reason why, you know, Mm -hmm. this dude couldn't have also been like, I'm going to solve the problem of playing the guitar in this graveyard over the next two years. Well, I know I've told you the story and I'm not going to name this person who we both knew and unfortunately has passed away. There was an actor I worked with in town years ago, one of my earliest films. And he was someone who had really kind of started as a model. You know who I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, and had started to develop an interest in acting. I got to him pretty early and he ended up becoming a fairly successful actor. And a lot of you local listeners would know him. If you DM me, I'll tell you who I'm talking about. I I don't want to talk out of school, so I'm not going to name him here. But when he did this short film for me, but this would have been back in 2004, I remember looking at his script and he had made notes on every single line of dialogue. I remember just being blown away by the amount of work that he put mm. into it. And I kind of mentioned it to him. I asked him and very humbly, he said something, I don't remember exactly what he said, but it was something like, Hey, I'm trying to do this thing. And I've never really learned how to do it. Mm-hmm. I'm not coming at this with like years of experience or a ton of like honed instinct. So I'm not doing the fucking work, man. 
Mm-hmm. And like that, I remember just being like my respect level for this person just grew enormously. Mm-hmm. And so when I look at stories like Robert Johnson, who wanted to be a blues musician, who apparently wasn't very good, like mm-hmm. he just buckled down and did the work. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, again, as always with these things, the horror fan in me, like I love the, I mean, this is why I wanted to tell the story. I right. love the Robert Johnson selling a soul to the devil story. Right. I'd rather give him credit for the work that he put in to becoming the musician that he became. Right. And I just, I think it's so sad that he died so young. Yeah. Because like, just imagine what he could have done, you know? Yeah. So I got a couple last quotes. Um, This is from that Elijah Wald from his book where he's also kind of debunking the selling a soul to the devil story. He says, quote, it is a universal fact that the terrors of the occult are fascinating. And it is common for them to be condemned by respectable people. So it is not surprising that white blues fans have eagerly accepted the connection of blues with mysterious demonic forces, Mm. nor that they have found black churchgoers whose views confirm this connection. The fans ignore the fact that the church folk frequently put fiddlers and tellers of fairy tales in the same category as Robert Johnson. And I can say from my deeply religious grandpa, he was suspicious of anybody artistic. Like it, it was you, nobody, oh, nobody, is, but, nobody but Scotty can see my face right, right yeah, yeah. now, but it is one of well, shock and awe. You know, he grew up on a farm. He, I mean, I talked about him and the tickling the dragon's tail. He moved to Los Alamos to be one of the like early, early, early civilians in the Manhattan Project as a mechanic. Mm-hmm. He ended up essentially helping. He was the superintendent of roads in Los Alamos for many mm-hmm. years. He was a practical work kind of guy, but things like dancing, you know, he listened to country music and stuff, but you know, he was very like idle hands or the devil's playground kind of attitude towards this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, like it's just believable to me that like anyone who's operating kind of outside of the quote norm, mm-hmm. you know, respectable behavior, a fiddler, teller of fairy tales, blues musician, immediately it's like, that's the devil's work that you're doing. Okay. So anyway, to continue, he says, when Harry Middleton Hyatt, who I just quoted, Mm -hmm. collected stories of musicians going to the crossroads to gain supernatural skills as part of a vast study of Southern folk beliefs in the 1930s, he reported as many banjo players and violinists as guitarists. So this idea of people like selling their soul to the devil was just all over the South. Right. Like Robert Johnson, he was one of like many motherfuckers who sold his soul to the devil, apparently. Right. <laughs> everybody's everybody's selling their souls. Probably people who are like crocheting blankets and stuff were like selling their souls to the devil, you know? People who um, made like a good pecan pie. Yeah. Devil's devil. work. Devil's work. Uh, so he goes on to say, which is to say, I can be as fascinated by occult musings as the next guy, but it's long past time for music journalists to get over the cliche of always linking Robert Johnson and the devil. For at least a few years, I propose a moratorium on sentences like persistent themes in his blues were religious despair and pursuit by demons, or Johnson seemed emotionally disturbed by the image of the devil the quote, hellhound. Such sentences tell us less about the realities of Johnson's music than about the romantic leanings of his later urban white listeners. There is no suggestion from any of his friends or acquaintances that the hellish or demon-harried aspects of his work were of particular importance to him or that they were even noticed by the people who crowded around him. Sorry. Giving a pause so you can... (laughs) Donia like growled and got up off the couch. So if you, when you're listening back to this, hear a weird devil sound in the middle of that quote, it's my fucking hellhound dog. And 
and I think one thing that obviously plays into the myth is he did write songs like Me and the Devil Blues, A Hell mm-hmm. on My Trail, things like that, mm-hmm. that have kind of, but it's like, there's a lot of cherry picking to find evidence right. kind of thing. So yeah. that's where I come down. I come down on a hard no. He did not okay. sell a soul to the devil. But I kind of like, there's a part of me that kind of wishes he sold a soul to the devil <laughs> just because that's, that's more fun. But Well, I mean, I, you know, and I like, we, we will never know. Yeah. I mean, again, you know as I mean? an agnostic, I wasn't there. So, you know, maybe he did sell a soul to the devil. It just yeah. seems, seems more likely he just, what's the quote? How do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, man, practice. Mm-hmm. You yeah. Know, that, yeah. That's what it sounds like to me. Yeah. So. Is Robert Johnson the character? Does he show up in uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? I don't remember. That's a good I question. I feel like there's a moment when, the, when like they're all might. traveling and they pick up like a young black musician and there's yes. a whole thing. But I don't know if that, if if like he's named Robert Johnson or if it's just sort of like, like an, an amalgam. Yeah. Yeah. Like sort of a, an amalgamation of like everybody who had this kind of folklore around their ability. But I feel like it's in that. I feel like it's in Oh Brother, Where Art I think you may be right. Full disclosure, that is not my favorite Crumb Brothers movie. So I actually haven't watched it since it came out. But Mm -hmm. I do remember that. I almost, I kind of want to go back and rewatch it because I think you may be right. I think that might have been meant to be Robert Johnson. And of course, there's the movie Crossroads from 1986 that I want to say, like, was that the movie that Ralph Macchio was in? I Sorry, I was thinking the Britney Spears (laughs) Zoe Saldana. No, not that one. This is this is <laughs> but it and it's also been years since I've seen that movie. Like I have a vague memory of Ralph Macchio being in it. Um, okay. Hope he no wasn't idea. Robert Johnson. I don't think he was. Wow, <laughs> wow, bad um, casting Hollywood. But I I do know that that movie kind of takes on this like Robert Johnson sold a soul at the crossroads myth. So, interesting yeah wow so that is the story of robert johnson not selling his soul to the devil <laughs> and just working real hard and getting real good <laughs> having talent having like dedication and ambition and that's where and how he got to where he was oddly long fingers that might have helped him in various ways <laughs> commercial break Awesome. Okay. So after last week when I was like, man, I wish we like, we never cover any like good love stories, just like nice, <laughs> good love stories. And I got to thinking about it when we really haven't. So I am going to talk to you about Ludwig von Beethoven and his mysterious immortal beloved. Ooh. Yes. Uh, Sources for this are an article from The Guardian called Death and the Muse, the website Letters of Note, Wikipedia, Britannica, an article from Mental Floss that was like 19 facts about Beethoven that you might not know, and a video, a YouTube video from the Classical Cake series titled Beethoven's Immortal Beloved Identified. Classical Cake, that series is an interesting, it's an interesting YouTube series because he talks about classical music with a musicologist and they eat like a classical cake. <laughs> oh, that sounds that sounds awesome. <laughs> I've never it's heard like, of it. It's very adorable. Um, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> We're going to have to like check that out. That sounds cool. Okay. So uh, Ludwig von Beethoven is a German, was a German composer and a predominant musical figure in the period between the classical and romantic eras. Just a little FYI, I'm not going to sit here and give everybody like a book report on Beethoven. I'm going to really focus more on the immortal beloved story. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to like dip into it, but at, like <laughs> there's no way to cover <laughs> everything about Beethoven and his music and his career and everything in like a four hour episode. Yeah. And it would be talking about a lot of stuff somewhat like with the stuff that you were going into with the blues music that is like, okay, that's, that's right. It's like quantum physics. Right. Right. So I'm not going to talk about it too much, but I'm going to give you a little bit of background. Beethoven is widely regarded as the greatest composer ever. Mm. According to thought it was Mozart, but I guess because that probably it's like sharks in the jets kind of thing. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) And like, I will personally say that I'm a fan of Beethoven in terms of like the, you know, what are regarded as like the classical meaning like of that era composers. I tend to go more towards his music. My personal opinion, I'm just going to like editorialize here. Mozart feels really like light and airy and frothy to me. Yeah. And, and Beethoven's music is tempestuous. It's like it's, roiling with emotion and humanity. And, it's a and, little bit metal. Like, is yeah. it like the ninth symphony? Or yeah. Ninth symphony? Like, yeah. There's just, there's yeah, a lot there's a of edge there. Yeah. And, and it's clear to me listening to Beethoven's music that he was composing to, I, I don't uh, like, like emotionally like mm-hmm. free himself of these emotions yeah. that that yeah. he was that he was feeling i think it's very rich I'm a, I'm a big beethoven fan so he's widely regarded as the greatest composer ever according to uh britannica the article about him on there says quote he revealed more vividly than any of his predecessors the power of music to convey a philosophy of life without the aid of spoken text and in certain mm. of his compositions is to be found the strongest assertion of the human will in all music, if not all art. Mm, Um, Yeah. Musically, he was an innovator, a skilled improviser. Uh, Like there were people that were like, if you haven't heard Beethoven, like musically improvise, you've never heard musical improvisation. And in his ninth symphony, which you just mentioned, uh, he combined vocal and instrumental music in a way that no one had ever attempted before. Meaning that before that instrumental music, when you had a combination of vocal and instrumental music, the instrumental was there to basically support the vocals. And then the ninth symphony came along and the vocals are really there to support the instrumental. Mm, Interesting. The ninth symphony, this is a hard thing I think about classical music is that it's like ninth symphony and you go to go look it up and there's like 18 ninth symphonies. (laughs) Um, The ninth symphony is a piece of music. It's a a symphony that is written. It has four movements. The final movement contains the ode to joy, which we can pop in a little bit right here if we want to. Yeah, 
and it is, it's, it's a pretty great piece of music in my humble, non-educated opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Beethoven famously lost his hearing throughout his life, which I'll talk about a little bit more later, but mm-hmm. um, some of his most important works were composed during the last 10 years of his life when he was quite unable to hear. Wow. Beethoven was unique in that he made, he actually made his living from the sale and publications of his work, but he was also the first musician to get paid solely from composing work, how and when he felt like it. Hmm. He like brought in some extra money from like piano lessons and stuff like that. But for the most part, he was making his money composing. Wow. So a little background on the man himself. He was born in December of 1770 in Bonn, and that's a city on the banks of the Rhine in the German state of North Rhine-Westphalia. The exact date of his birth is unknown, but the church records do exist saying that he was baptized on December 17th, and it was normal during that time to baptize an infant within 24 hours of his birth. Okay. So it's commonly assumed that he his birthday was December December 16th, 1770. Beethoven was actually the third Ludwig. So like his grandfather was a Ludwig Uh, von Beethoven and there was another one somewhere along the line. And he actually came from a long line of musicians. His grandfather that I just mentioned, Ludwig was a court bass singer and he eventually became the Kapellmeister or the music director at the court of Clemens Auguste, the Archbishop Elector of Cologne. His father- (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So basically he was like the court music director. Right. Oh, uh, which is like a pretty big deal. Yeah. His father, Johan, was a tenor in the same court. Johan was also an alcoholic and he would actually end up losing his job, his position mm. uh, as a court singer due to his alcoholism. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. Beethoven was one of three that the alcoholism will come back in a bit. Beethoven was one of three surviving children of Johan and his wife, Maria Magdalena Keverich. The couple had seven kids total, but only three survived past infancy. The other four Mm. died. Beethoven started his musical education at the age of five. Wow. Yeah. At the urging of his father. Uh, Beethoven had, by that time, by the age of five, he'd already shown musical promise and his father envisioned Beethoven becoming the next uh, Wolfgang or Wolfgang or Nannerl Mozart. Mm. Um, I should talk about Nannerl Mozart at some point point, she's sort of forgotten because Wolfgang kind of took over in collective society uh, awareness of the Mozart family. But I mean, she was doing her own shit. She was pretty cool. Cool. Johan, so back to back to Beethoven. Johan, Beethoven's father, was just a jackass. He was a cruel (laughs) and unrelenting teacher. Neighbors recall stories of seeing young Beethoven standing on a bench to reach the keyboard, crying, and his Uh. father like looming over him him. Johan also contracted several other musicians to teach the young Beethoven, including Tobias Frederick Pfeiffer, a raging insomniac who would drag young Ludwig out of bed in the middle of the night for his music lessons. It's pretty clear that Johan looked at Beethoven and saw dollar signs yeah. and so was like trying to really like push him as this child prodigy and was like would market him as being younger than he actually was in order to perpetuate this prodigy myth. So like just almost standard stage parent kind of. 
100%. Yeah. And that, I mean, the thing is, is that the fucking kid was Beethoven. Like you could have just left him alone. You yeah. Just let him be fucking Beethoven. Yeah. yeah like you could have just let him be Beethoven, but Johan was like, fucking right. Um, <laughs> and just like dollar Money. signs, dollar signs. Yeah. yeah. Just ching, 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 ching. So clearly Beethoven was a skilled musician. And because of that, he left school at the age of 11 mm. to study music and, and actually to start working as a musician and, and like as a musician's assistant and all that mm-hmm. stuff. He, never learned to multiply or divide. And so until Mm. the day he died, if he had to multiply, say like 30 by 25, he would lay out 30, 25 times and add them up. Okay. I mean, that's almost what I do, except I have a calculator, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. He didn't. Um, (laughs) So I'm just trying to say, I'm just like. Yeah. You basically you're Beethoven. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Beethoven (laughs) actually traveled to Vienna at the age of 17. And some stories say he was in Vienna at the same time as Mozart. And there are stories that say that Beethoven actually played a recital that Mozart attended. Hmm. And the rumor goes that Mozart left the recital saying, keep your eyes on him. Someday he'll give the world something to talk about. But that could just be, that could just be rumor. I don't know much about this history. So Mozart was like a little bit before him, like a little like Mm -hmm. earlier. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit earlier than him. They did overlap a little bit. Okay. Beethoven did end up studying with Mozart's mentor, Joseph Hayden and his peer, Antonio Salieri. Oh yeah. Beethoven struggled with his health. He was like a sick guy his entire life. He suffered from colitis, rheumatism, rheumatic fever, typhus, skin disorders, abscesses, infections, chronic hepatitis, cirrhosis of the liver, and of course, deafness. Around the age of 26, Beethoven started losing his hearing. Oh, wow. That's young. Yeah. Wow. I didn't realize it was that young. Well, he only lived to be 54, I think. There is no clear diagnosis for why he lost his hearing. And as a matter mm-hmm. of fact, there are like a ton of theories about it. Yeah. Um, Beethoven himself said that he started to lose his hearing after he said that he had a fight with a singer in 1798. And then after that fight, he had a fit hmm. and that the hearing loss started after that. Other people say that he took a fall after being startled, hmm. um, that he had a childhood illness like typhus or smallpox. Some people say that it was the result of syphilis or lead poisoning. Yeah, I think I've heard that theory. Mm -hmm. And even others say that he had a habit of dunking his head in cold water to keep himself awake and that that led to the hearing loss. Okay. Um, His condition didn't stop him from composing, but it did cause him to almost completely stop performing in public in the last several years of his life. While in Heiligenstadt on doctor's orders, uh, Beethoven- Good job with that pronunciation, by the way. (laughs) Thank you. I'm assuming you're right, but yeah. Thank you. So while he was in Heiligenstadt, Beethoven wrote what would become known as the Heiligenstadt Testament. And that is a letter to his brothers in which he wrote of his thoughts of suicide because of his worsening hearing loss. Mm. He also wrote of his resolution to continue living for and through his art. He also wrote letters to other friends that were not so despairing. In one, he said that he was determined to, quote, seize fate by the throat. It shall certainly not crush me completely, end quote. Mm. He also wrote on one of his composition, one of his musical sketches, he wrote down, let your deafness no longer be a secret, even in your art. Mm. Oh, just that one. Yeah, that one, that one kind of got me too. 
Yeah. The Heiligenstadt Testament was never sent and it was actually discovered in his estate papers after his death, along with another mysterious writing. So after Beethoven's death in March of 1827, his assistant, a man by the name of Anton Schindler, found a secret drawer, which God, like, (laughs) God grant me a secret drawer. You know what I mean? Like. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to put all my secret things in. Oh my god! So if you have one, you should just like write a bunch of cryptic shit on some like no paper, and then people will talk about it for centuries. Yes, and like some weird coins. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> amazing. Um, so Anton Schindler finds this secret drawer in a wardrobe, and there's like some papers, some pictures, and I think some money. Mm-hmm. And along with all that stuff, there are two documents, the aforementioned Heiligenstadt Testament and what would become known as the Immortal Beloved Letter. This is a letter. It covers 10 pages. They're small pages. So think of like a, a hotel memo pad. The letter was written in three bursts in pencil. It is written in Beethoven's own like scrawling handwriting. And the letter discusses Beethoven's emotional torment and desire for an unnamed woman. Addressed originally at the beginning of the letter as my angel, my all, my own self, and later as my immortal beloved. Mm-hmm. The letter is dated, like I said, he wrote it in three bursts. Mm. So it's dated, the first chunk is dated July 6th morning, the second Monday evening, July 6th, and the third good morning on July 7th. Mm. Okay. The letters include no year, but it's assumed that it was written in 1812 while the composer was in the Czech spa town of Teplitz. Because he had the day of the week on there, they were able to narrow it down to a period. And then because the letter still exists to this day, there was a watermark on it, like an actual, like water had dripped on it. And they were able to do some kind of weird dating with the watermark and narrow it down. Yeah, some science shit and narrow it down to 1812. Okay, interesting. Yeah, so it's believed that he he wrote these letters while he was in this spa town of Teplitz. He had been advised, you know, because he was he was a sickly guy. In 1811, his doctor was like, yo, why don't you go take the waters in Teplitz? And he did that in 1811 and then went back again in 1812. Mm, Additionally, by 1812, it was pretty clear that Beethoven was in the middle of a pretty severe midlife crisis. Yeah. Um, Beethoven had arrived at Teplitz at around four or five in the morning the night before. And then he woke up the next morning to begin this letter full of these like declarations of passion and love to this woman he had possibly met up with in Prague on his way to Teplitz. There's illusions in the letter to meeting in Prague Okay. in the days leading up to that. Throughout the letter, it is clear that for some reason, the two cannot be together, though the reason is never blatantly stated. I'm going to read you a couple of quotes. Um, mm-hmm. I won't read the whole letter, but I will post pictures of the original letter on our social media and then a translation in our Instagram stories. So you can check it out there. But the first one is my angel, my all, my own self, only a few words today. And that too, with pencil, with yours, meaning he was writing her these letters with her pencil. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's something about that that's just i don't know oh, i didn't know that like he got this pencil from her Fuck, yeah like treasuring her pencil i know 
The second is, can our love persist otherwise than through sacrifices? Then by not demanding everything, canst thou change it that thou are not entirely mine, I not entirely thine? The third is, you suffer. Oh, where I am, you are with me, with me and you. I shall arrange that I may live with you. What a life. The fourth is, I weep when I think you will probably only receive on Saturday the first news from me, as you too love, yet I love you stronger, but never hide yourself from me. Oh God, so near, so far. The fourth is even in bed, my ideas yearn towards you, my immortal beloved here and there joyfully. Then again, sadly awaiting from fate, whether it will listen to us. I can only live either altogether with you or not at all. This passage is especially like scandalous Hmm. because of its intimate nature. As he mentions his thoughts turning towards her in bed. Um, The (laughs) implication there is that his thoughts are not only like loving, ones but like sexy ones as well well. i mean yeah yeah (laughs) it's considered Uh, as we talked about last week man like (laughs) nothing wrong with like healthy self-pleasuring if 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 you do it right yeah, you know, and he was like, oh, I'm in this town. I've, I've, I've taken the waters today. Like, ugh. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's it's considered one of the more like, like I said, sort of scandalous, mm-hmm. uh, intimate passages in the letter. And many scholars believe it to mean that the two had already slept together, that they'd already had sex. I hope um, so. Because for him to use such explicit for the time language without that happening would be far beyond the bounds of propriety. And it would be, it would be insulting. Like it would be insulting to her. Yeah. It'd be like the 17th century version of like a dick pic. I mean, a little bit. Yeah. Like I'm an unwarranted dick. (laughs) Amazing. The letter ends with what longing in tears for you, you, my life, my all farewell. Oh, go on loving me. Never doubt the faithfulest heart of your beloved L, ever thine, ever mine, ever ours. Wow. So, who is she? Yeah. Theories abound. <laughs> um, Anton Schindler, who was, let me also go on say here that I have been obsessed with the story since the Gary Oldman movie, Immortal mm-hmm. Beloved, came out. Nothing in that movie is correct. Like, everything (laughs) is just Hollywood dramatization. It's a great movie. Like Gary Oldman is fantastic in it. Go and watch it. But they make a strong case for his immortal beloved actually being his sister-in-law, Johanna. Mm. They hated each other. They hated each other. And Ludwig actually petitioned for custody of his nephew, Carl, while his brother, Carl's father, was alive and then continued to do it after his father had died. Like he was like, this kid, like, like, I need to, I need to be the custodian of this child. Yeah, it doesn't sound like, do you want to, do you want to know some fun little trivia about that movie? Yes. So the director of that film, Bernard Rose, is also the director of the movie Candyman. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like two <laughs> just very... blew your fucking mind. <laughs> well, I was thinking like two very like opposite ends of the spectrum. And yet I actually can see how that if, if you watch them, because I did watch Immortal Beloved mainly because I was like a fan of Bernard Rose because of Candyman. Stylistically, you can mm-hmm. see a unifying vision, but you're right, they're very different films. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. 
So in the movie, Immortal Beloved, Anton Schindler is like a close friend and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Anton Schindler was, in real life, Anton Schindler was Beethoven's like secretary. Okay. He worked for him and they were close, but they weren't like- It was like professional. Yes, it was professional. As I mentioned, Anton Schindler was the one who found the Immortal Beloved letter in his papers after, after Beethoven's death. So Anton Schindler, in his biography of Beethoven, named Giulietta Wachardi as the Immortal Beloved and was like, that's who it is, blah, blah, blah. Giulietta was an aristocrat who began taking piano lessons with Beethoven when she was 16. She's played by Valeria Golino in the movie. Mm. Beethoven actually dedicated his Moonlight Sonata to Giulietta. So there's that. Yeah. Okay. But regarding Beethoven, Julieta said he was, quote, very ugly, but noble, refined (laughs) in feeling and cultured. So it doesn't sound like she was super. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Beethoven said of her that he had met, quote, a dear, charming girl who loves me and whom I love. For the first time, I feel that marriage could make me happy. Mm. Unfortunately, she is not of my class. Mm. And later, Beethoven said that Julieta had, quote, sought me out crying, but I scorned her. She ended up marrying another composer. So. Who knows? I mean. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, that could kind of go either way. Right. And it seems like, honestly, Beethoven was very sort of unlucky in love. And. Uh, And this might also be why I feel such a connection to Beethoven's music. He felt that he was unlucky in love and that he was deeply committed to his work. Yeah. I mean, I get that. Yeah. He was, you know, for all intents and purposes, married to the creation of his work. So, Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. eh. Annie was a musician and, Uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. Our second possibility is a woman named Therese Malfatti. Mm-hmm. When I'm sorry, her name is Therese. Uh, when Therese died, she was the owner of Beethoven's Fur Elise. Mm. And many have speculated that Elise could be a pet name for Therese. Okay. Beethoven seemed to want to propose to Therese in 1810, but okay, I don't know what happened, but somehow he fucked it up and offended <laughs> not only Therese, but her entire family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of the matter, I Beethoven. had to be a fly on the wall in that. I mean, <laughs> I'm just like, what did you do? Yeah. yeah. Of the matter, Beethoven said, quote, once again, it is only in my own heart that I can see comfort. There is none for me outside it. Mm. I feel you, Beethoven. Poor guy. Yeah. The third is a woman named Amelie Sebald. Amelie was in Teplitz at the same time as Beethoven in 1811 
and in 1812. So they were both in that spa town at the same time. In 1811, Amelie was there in the company of poet Christian Auguste Teige. I think that's how you say his name. Mm -hmm. Knowing this, knowing that she was there with this poet, Beethoven told Teige to send Amelie, quote, a very ardent kiss if no one can see us. This sentiment And it's funny because I'm like, what's the difference between this and my thoughts turn like once again in bed, my thoughts yearn towards you. Mm -hmm. But according to scholars, this sentiment is seen as like pretty innocent flirting and not the like fiery passion that is contained within the immortal beloved letter. Okay. Um, He might have been like masking it a little bit, like trying to pretend like it was playful when deep down his loins were burning, you know? Okay. All right. (laughs) Relax, please. (laughs) <laughs> a fourth option is a woman named Antonia Brentano. Beethoven was very close with her family, her married family. So not like her parents and her as a child, but her, her husband and their children. Whoops. He even dedicated a short piano trio to her daughter, Maximilian, and later dedicated his Diabelli variations to Antonia. Um, Antonia and her husband Franz were vacationing in Bohemian spa towns, like Mm -hmm. around Teplitz, but not Teplitz, during the summer of 1812. There are a lot of scholars that think that Antonia is a, quote, tantalizing and absurd option for the immortal beloved. Tantalizing because Beethoven and the Brentanos stayed in the same hotel at some point Mm -hmm. during the summer of 1812. Antonia and Beethoven were very close and also the musical dedications to her daughter and to herself. Mm -hmm. Absurd, and I think this is a stronger argument, absurd because Beethoven was very close to Antonia's husband, Franz, so close that he borrowed money from him. Yeah, that sounds, and and that makes me think of like the thing, like people just have a hard time wrapping their head around platonic friendships. Right. I don't know. Like, yeah, he was close to her, but that doesn't mean anything. Right. And there are letters between the two that exist or that at least existed after his, like during their lives and after their deaths, the letters that they wrote each other showed like a deep, true but altogether formal friendship. Yeah. Beethoven seemed to see Antonia, Franz, and their children as this sort of like inseparable unit. Yeah. So there's that. That's pretty convincing to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, There are some people who even think that Beethoven was not writing to an actual woman, but rather writing to his like muse Hmm. because the letter coincided with the, like a creative dip that the, that that the Beethoven was experiencing. Yeah. That he was like, Oh, like he was, you know, kind of stuck and was writing these letters to this muse. That's an interesting theory. Mm -hmm. After 1812, Beethoven created virtually like, this is the dip that I'm talking about. He After 1812, he created Mm -hmm. virtually no new work until about 1816 when Mm. he emerged. The quote from the Guardian article says he emerged on again into the fall flood of creativity. I think that might be full flood of creativity. I think I transcribed that incorrectly. (laughs) Okay, so we're going to come back to this creative dip in a little bit. Okay. Most scholars believe 
that the most likely suspect for Beethoven's Immortal Beloved is a woman named Josefina Brunswick. Okay. She was a Hungarian countess and she was another student, another piano student of Beethoven. He taught Josefina and her sister Therese. So different Therese from the one I mentioned before. And okay. from now I'll, I'll only be talking about Therese Brunswick. Yeah. Sounds um, like he burned that other bridge. Yeah. He burned <laughs> <laughs> like done and done. Yeah. Um, so he taught Josefina and her sister Therese piano for four hours every day. The normal length of a piano lesson with Beethoven was one hour. Okay. He spent four hours every day. So with, he liked them. Yeah. yeah. Josefina and Therese's mother was looking for husbands for both daughters, but Beethoven was immediately taken with Josefina. Therese actually had like this whole very interesting life and she went on to basically create preschool in, I want to say Poland, but that might not be right. But her, like this, this like pre-education childcare thing that she created would then go on to become the basis of kindergarten. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, that makes sense because the word kindergarten is German. So it makes Mm -hmm. sense it would kind of come from that area. Yeah. And kindergarten was invented later on by a dude, but it was Therese's principles that led to the creation of kindergarten. Interesting. Yeah. Um, But Therese was also like, I saw different things and the portraits that I found of Therese were when she was older and the portraits Ah. of Josefina are when, from when she's younger. So it's hard to say, (laughs) but I did see in some places. (laughs) Yeah. I did see in some places that Therese was like homely and that she had like a crooked spine and Mm. there were, there were some accounts of that. But anyways, what's up other sister? Yeah. He he was, he was immediately taken with Josefina. He actually went on to say that that he had to immediately suppress his love for her. Mm, Okay. And that he thought that she returned some feelings as well. Josefina was attractive and charming. Men were kind of falling all over themselves to marry her. Mm -hmm. But being a countess, she needed a wealthy husband of equal or better social standing. Did you have a question? Well, I was just going to say, what was the age difference? Do you know? Roughly. Um, (laughs) she was younger, but not like inappropriately. So, so he wasn't like 40 and she wasn't 17. I mean, honestly, she might've been, but (laughs) (laughs) let me see if I can, Uh, um, I'm going to have to fact, yeah, I'm going to have to fact check that. But so he would have been of like lower social standing than her. Yeah. Cause he was a musician. You know what I mean? And she was noble. Right. And she was a legit countess. She was right. a Hungarian countess. So she really needed to marry like at or above her social standing. She actually eventually ended up marrying Count Josef Dame. And he, you know, going back to the age thing that you're asking about, he was almost 30 years her senior. Mm. And in everything that I'm seeing, it was like, oh my God, her first husband was so much older than she was, but they don't make that connection about her and Beethoven. Okay. So he was at least not 28 years older than she was. (laughs) A lot of people say that her and Yosef, that Yosefina and Yosef had an unhappy marriage, you know, that was, it was arranged and blah, blah, blah. Kind of like political. Right. But there there are others who say that they actually had like a reasonably happy one. Okay. However, there exist 108 letters written between Yosef and Yosefina during their marriage. They're not only very loving, but also 
erotic. Like Randy. <laughs> yeah. So they had a good marriage. Yeah. Get at it. Yeah. yeah. Like they were, you know, doing old school. They were sexting each other and, you know, doing the thing. <laughs> um, good for them. I... Yeah. There also exists some 13 to 15 letters. I've seen 13, 14, 15 cited in different sources mm-hmm. um, between Beethoven and Josefina. The letters exist to like, I think to this day, they weren't lost because Josefina's descendants fled the communists that were coming into the Czech Republic. Mm-hmm. And they like, they grabbed the letters and took them. So the actual letters between them still exist. These letters were written between 1804 and 1809 after Dame had died. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Josefina had four kids at this time that she'd had with Joseph. The language in the letters that Beethoven wrote to Josefina during this five-year period closely mirrors the language that shows up in the immortal beloved letters. He calls her. And this would have been a few years after her husband died. Mm -hmm. A few years after her husband had died and before the immortal beloved letter, because that was in 1812 Um, in these letters. So not in the immortal beloved letter, but in the letters that they shared during this five-year period, he calls her my angel, my all. He says that his love for her is eternal, that she will make him more productive, and that he is faithful to her. Mm, like things that he also mirrors in the immortal beloved letter. That's not piano teacher to student. Like there's, mm, yeah, mm. that sounds like there was something more there. Yeah. Beethoven also uses the informal and intimate do, which is a German word for you, mm-hmm. when ref- I believe, when referring to her rather than the formal and much more appropriate. Z. Mm, okay. Many take that to mean that they'd been involved in an intimate love relationship with each other. I mean, in yeah, I'm I like believable. Yeah. In 1807, Josefina and Teresa's younger sister, Charlotta, wrote to Josefina telling her to, quote, let God return peace to yourself. Mm. Beethoven was not allowed in Josefina's home after 1807. Okay. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And she had no contact with Beethoven after 1809. In 1810, she married a Count Stockelberg. Because she was pregnant with his child. I also kind of dig that like Mm. Josefina has this like (laughs) vibrant sex life. Like she's got this like, er she's exchanging erotic letters with her husband. She F's this Count Stockelberg dude out of wedlock. (laughs) And then is like, I guess let's get hitched. Um, Not a lot of fucks to give me. Yeah. She's (laughs) like, I'm a Hungarian countess. What are you going to do to me? Do what I want. I do what I want. And she's like, at least I'm not Elizabeth Bathory. So, you know. (laughs) At least I'm not Therese with her homely face and her crooked spine. Um, (laughs) Poor thing. She invented pre-care. Okay. So yeah. So she marries Count Stockelberg because she gets pregnant with his child. The immortal beloved letter states, do not hide yourself from me. And most scholars disputing Josefina as the immortal beloved claim that the two had no contact after 1807. But... In 1818, Therese writes Josefina and says, let's go on vacation. We could go to Naples, we could go to Brazil, or we could go to London with Beethoven, which means they had to have had contact. Yeah. Well, and I- Yeah. 
I mean, I'm just going to throw this in there. Like, there's something about the Immortal Beloved letter that, like, even if they hadn't been in contact at that time, that feels like it's a guy. It's like the email. I'm not saying I've ever done this, quote unquote, but (laughs) it's like the email, like, you send to, like, an ex-girlfriend who's mad at you and you're just, like, desperately trying to get back in her good graces kind of thing. Mm. Like, Like, there's something unrequited in what you read that feels like like maybe there was something there maybe because of social issues or because of whatever like he was cut off and he's sitting there alone like desperately pinning this thing that he never sends to her you know so the fact that they weren't in contact to me doesn't mean that it couldn't be her you know at that time that is an interesting theory yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna continue you probably know (laughs) way more than me but The Immortal Beloved letter, like I mentioned Mm -hmm. before, hints that the two had seen each other, that Beethoven and whoever this Immortal Beloved was, Mm -hmm. um, had seen each other in Prague on July 3rd. (laughs) Or or that, rather than... Or that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So we're going to tackle this little problem now. Okay. So... In 1812, Josefina and Stockelberg had a big fight, uh, big, big fight. And Stockelberg left Josefina. Ooh. Not only did he leave her, he left her with a debt. Ooh. Yeah. So Josefina had maintained contact with her first husband, Josef uh, Dame's relatives in Prague. Mm-hmm. And after Dame's death, Emperor Franz had told Josefina, do not worry, your children are my children. Okay. So she's saddled with this debt that Stockelberg has left her with so he sounds like a dick yeah he sounds like a real stand-up guy so josefina is like well i've got this debt and so she decides to take off to prague to try to settle this debt and to meet with the emperor franz who just happened to be in prague which is near teplitz on july 1st 1812 okay so Mm -hmm. from diary entries and therese's own memoir therese took josefina's children during the summer of 1812 okay while Josefina went off. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Also, Beethoven canceled a meeting with Varnhagen von Ense on the night of July 3rd, wrote him a letter being like, hey, sorry, I'm not going to be able to meet tonight. Mm-hmm. What the hell was he doing? And was he with Josefina that night? Yeah. In the fall of 1812, Beethoven wrote a journal entry that seemed to read, quote, in this manner with A, the letter A, everything goes to ruin, meaning there won't be a happy ending. Because of this particular entry, a lot of scholars assumed that the immortal beloved was somebody with an A name, Antonia, Amelie, but Beethoven's diaries are lost and only copies remained, meaning that they were like copy edited, right? Right. In other non-Beethoven documents, like ones that he didn't write, Stockelberg is commonly abbreviated to ST, and it frequently looks like an A. Mm. So perhaps Beethoven was trying to say, in this manner with Stockelberg, everything goes to ruin. Mm. Meaning the husband is the problem. Right, right, right. mm -hmm. right. Musicologist Rita Stebbin, who was on that YouTube video, has looked at Beethoven's other writings and found that his STs look remarkably like A's. I mean, that seems pretty compelling. Yeah. 
Another clue. In 1816, a woman named Fanny Giantasio del Rio wrote in her diary about a conversation she overheard between her father and Beethoven, where her father asked Beethoven, like, haven't you, have you never, like, have mm-hmm. you never met a woman that you'd want to marry? To which Beethoven replied, yes, five years ago, I'd gotten to know a woman. He'd used the word, the German word, kennen. And Mm. some scholars take it to mean not that he had met a woman five years ago, but rather that he had known, like in the biblical sense, a woman five years ago. So sex. Yeah. Um, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Rita Stebbin also believes that it's very likely that Josefina, okay, this is nutty. Rita Seven also believes that Josefina gave birth to Beethoven's child. Mm, okay. Mm-hmm. Before the summer of 1812, Josefina was no longer sleep- was no longer sleeping with Stockelberg. I got ahead of myself there. Okay. So she was no longer sleeping with Stockelberg, literally or figuratively. She mm-hmm. actually made a maid move into a room in between them so um, that like Stockelberg wouldn't like into her so, rooms. So her first marriage was maybe a happy marriage. This one sounds very much not. Sounds, yeah, not so great. Post July 1812, Josefina came back a devoted wife. And sure enough, exactly nine months after July 3rd, she gave birth to a daughter. Minona. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So her being a devoted wife, maybe like she's trying to cover her tracks. Yeah. I heard things that like, I mean, clearly she was, she was a fertile woman. Like, yeah. like, you know, she had four kids. Uh, I think she had others with Stockelberg and she was always like, you know, yep. uh, she did, she did. Cause she had a child with him out of wedlock. So she, she like, she, she couldn't not get pregnant. Right. Right. But after July 3rd, 1812, she comes back and her oldest son, Franz, writes in his diaries about how his mother is this like devoted wife and that she's like dedicated herself to her family and her husband, Hmm. blah, blah, blah. And then nine months later, she has this baby, Monona. Okay. Nona. Okay. So Josefina gave all of her children significant names, like names that all had meaning. Mm -hmm. Monona means daughter of a musician. Okay. And it's not I like, mean, it's not like a literal translation, but Monona is named after, I think, like a mythological character who was the daughter of a musician. I mean, yeah. almost case closed here. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Done and done. You heard it here. (laughs) Monona was very different from all of Josefina's other children. She was serious and stern. Her nickname as a child was the governess. Hmm. Um, (laughs) And she was a genius. She also Mm -hmm. showed exceptional talent as a musician, so much so that there is a lot written about how the family is trying to figure out how to get her a career as a musician. Okay. Around 1819 or 1820, a friend wrote to Beethoven saying, quote, you talk so much about the woman that her husband is going to suspect that the child among his children with musical talent is your child. (laughs) Yeah. Just laying it all out here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The Immortal Beloved letter was found, like I said, after Beethoven's death. In the last 15 years of his life, he was never in one like lodging or dwelling for more than a year. He moved every year during the last 15 years of his life, which means he took that letter with him every single time he moved. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, it meant, and this is where it's like, it, this doesn't feel like I was writing to the muse to get over my writer's block. It seems, yeah. It seems more. Here. Yeah. There's also thoughts that in the immortal beloved letter, he says something about looking forward to seeing her in K, which people believe to mean Carlsbad. Okay. And there's something about Josefina changing her travel plans because she was supposed to be in Carlsbad, changing her travel plans and leaving. And so some people think that he sent the letter and that it was returned to him or that she wrote him and was like, hey, I'm not going to be in Carlsbad. And he never sent the letter. And this Carlsbad, it was a spa town too, right? I believe so. Yeah. I, th- I think I know that just because I think when I was reading up on Carlsbad, New Mexico, I think they named it after that town. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those bohemian spa towns. Yeah. So like I said, he carried the letter with him and until he died. We're going to go back now to that creative downturn yeah. that he took. His resurgence when he finally started writing again in around 1816 led to the most spiritual period of his work ever. It's mm. when he wrote some of his best work, including his ninth symphony, okay. regarded by many as not only his greatest work, but one of the supreme achievements in the history of music. When he wrote the Ninth Symphony, Beethoven was almost completely deaf. The symphony premiered on May 7th, 1824, and Beethoven had not been seen on stage in almost 12 years. Wow. The piece was technically directed or conducted by Michael Umlauf, but Beethoven was like, I'm also going to be conducted. The musicians were directed to only watch Umlauf. (laughs) At the end, at the end, the audience erupted in applause. Beethoven, still conducting and several bars off, kept going. The contralto, Caroline Unger, walked over to Beethoven, turned him around to see the cheers and applause. Uh, This is the quote from Wikipedia. The audience acclaimed him through standing ovations five times. There were handkerchiefs in the air, hats, and raised hand, so that Beethoven, who they knew could not hear the applause, could at least see the ovations. Mm, That hits right in the feels. Yeah. Yeah. Beethoven died after a months long illness on March 26th, 1827. Okay. Around 5 p.m., there was a flash of lightning, a clap of thunder. Beethoven opened his eyes, lifted his right hand, and looked up for several seconds with his fist clenched and died. Approximately 10,000 people attended his funeral procession. Beethoven died never having married, his immortal beloved never acknowledging him publicly. But the Mm -hmm. letter sheds a different light on the fiery, complicated man who badly wanted to love and be loved. And that is the story of Beethoven and his immortal beloved. So what do you think? Do you think it's Josefina? I think it's compelling evidence for her. I mean, there was something there. There was something going on there. And it's the right time period. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it just seems to line up. Yeah. In the video that I was watching, there was a whole thing about Minona's grave essentially being up for sale. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, which I don't like. I don't understand how that would work. Yeah, what? (laughs) Um, And so people had contacted that musicologist that I had quoted earlier and they were like, can you do something about this? Like, can you buy the grave? And then can you do a DNA test and all of this stuff? And she was like, 
I, I'm I'm a musicologist. Like I don't have the money to buy a grave. <laughs> I mean, shocking, but becoming a musicologist is not like a ticket to riches. Probably. <laughs> yeah. And she'd also heard that they wouldn't be able to gather DNA from bones that old. But then yeah. there was like some back and forth about that. And we're not sure and blah, blah, blah. The thing that I think is really funny is, you know, like I said, in the Immortal Beloved movie, they posit that this woman was his sister-in-law and right. that the child who was his nephew, Carl, was actually his biological son. Oh, and they're saying that's why he wanted custody or whatever. Mm -hmm, okay. mm -hmm. The thing is, is that I'm like, this is an equally compelling yeah. story. I think, I mean, I can see why he would want to do the sister-in-law version of the story because it's more like fraught, you know, it's like, there's a lot of like interpersonal drama and, you know, families turning against each other and stuff. And it's just, mm -hmm. but this is like a more quiet simmering, I think more poignant story. Me too. And there's yeah. a whole thing that talked about after like Monona was born. It was not long after that, that Beethoven started to petition for custody of his nephew, Carl. And that it was like, that he, he was like, I'm never going to be able to claim this child for my own. So let me like let me steal my brother's child. Let me steal my brother's child. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and take over custody of that child. Like it's a child that he had some, uh, right. claim to all in all. I think, yeah, I think it's, I think of the people of, of the women that have been theorized as being the immortal beloved, I believe Josefina Brunswick is, I, I think the case is the most compelling for her. It sure sounds like it to me. Like, I mean, everything else is like, he dedicated some music, but I'm like, who's dedicating? Yeah, he they, was they dedicating music nice to children to too. Yeah. yeah. No, there, there seems like there's just like a lot that we don't know about that relationship and that, you know, the other ones seem like, it's easier to kind of be like, well, this, this is what that relationship was. And then this yeah. one, there's a lot more mystery. But yeah. like I said, things kind of line up. I know I told you this in text message, and this doesn't really have anything to do with the Immortal Beloved story, but I'm possibly distantly related to a woman named Anna Milder, who was one of the, I think she was an opera singer, I believe. I don't know a whole lot about her. Mm -hmm. She was an opera singer and Beethoven composed some operas for her. So, yep. yeah. She, and she was like a very, very famous opera singer of the time. Um, yeah. I don't believe she's, I think she was like much earlier maybe or something. So I don't think mm. she was ever, has been yeah, considered as a candidate for this. I think Fidelio. Maybe, yeah. Is what he wrote for her. I think so. Yeah. Something, I think it was something like that. Like I said, go and watch the movie. It's a good time. It's pretty apocryphal. Um, yeah. Like it's, it, it is takes, a good movie though. But it is a great movie. There's a beautiful scene, a visually beautiful scene. Mm -hmm. uh, like thematically, it's a tough scene, but it's like a memory that Beethoven is having of his father hitting him after being like a failure and not being a prodigy. And Beethoven like goes out. And I don't know if you remember this. He's like running kind through a field yeah. at night yeah. and he goes to like a pond and he's laying in okay, this yeah. pond and the stars are reflected in the water. So it looks like he's like floating in the universe and Ode to Joy is playing. Like it's gorgeous. Right. Those, those are the type of things that like I was saying, Bernard Rose, also directed Candyman and those kind of like visual flourishes are the type of thing I associate with him as yeah. a director you know I do I do remember that scene I'm trying to remember if Josefina if the character is even in Immortal Beloved I'm gonna look it up right now okay. you can play our you can play the pause music okay I typed Immortal Believed <laughs> <laughs> damn it okay 
Uh, yeah, the movie's also a lot of fun too because everybody is like, every character is like, I am his immortal beloved. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but everyone's taking credit. Yeah. Yeah, everybody takes credit. On the whole idea of that movie being apocryphal, like I remember that being a big criticism of the movie when it came out, but I'm like, you know what other movie like made up a bunch of shit that everyone celebrates is Amadeus. Like, uh, yeah. Not super historically accurate either. So. No, I mean, they like full on made up this feud between right. like Mozart the- and Salieri. Like, yeah, exactly. Oh, interesting. Okay, so she was a character. Okay, I don't know if you're going to remember this in the movie, but there's a scene where a woman is running down like a, a tree covered lane and she's running and she turns towards Beethoven and starts to take off her dress. I do not. You would think that's the type of scene I would remember. Yeah, and then they like <laughs> they I start don't. they start making out. I remember. Oh, it maybe so maybe I remember it a little bit. Mm-hmm. I remember it so clearly because I watched it last night. Oh, okay. But that's Josefina. Oh, and like in the movie, she's a real shit. Like Valeria Galino's character is talking about how she's going to go see Beethoven or how she saw him and blah blah blah. And they're at a dinner. They're all at a dinner together. Mm-hmm. And Valeria Galino is playing Julietta. Right. And her father is like, oh, yes, like Beethoven is teaching Julia, is like teaching Julietta piano. He's giving her lessons. And Josefina is like, what? <laughs> like, is very, like, displeased. She's real shitty. I wonder if it's because they're so trying. They, so they don't give her any. They're trying so hard to make the case that it's the sister-in-law that they were like, let's take the most likely candidate and just shit on that theory as yeah. much as you can. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Yeah. And there's like something there's something else there's some quote in a letter that Josefina had written to Beethoven that was like I'm paraphrasing it but it was it's basically like it's like I love you deeply and completely cannot not be enough for two gentle souls like us it's some it's something Ooh. like that it almost sounds like she's trying to let him down easy kind mm-hmm. of poor guy yeah. I mean, I I never read much about Beethoven, but I do know because I think it's just sort of known, you know, like everyone knows that like Mozart was kind of a mess. And I think it's like kind of the lore of Beethoven that he was this kind of unlucky in love, mm-hmm. tragically unrequited right. person. Yeah. Probably, and that probably is not, because of the immortal beloved lover. Right. And that is not to say like, there are plenty of other sources that are like that doubt that he was even writing to a, a real woman because he was deeply misogynistic. You know what I mean? Mm. And that's interesting. I never heard that, but that's interesting. Who wasn't at that time? Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, I'm not trying to be a dick and I'm not trying to be like a misogynist apologist here, but like who was not? Well, and it's, I mean, okay, let's let's just go with that theory for just a second. Like, if he was a misogynist, it's possible that he still was, quote, in love with somebody. But, like, to him, love might have been more like possession, you know? Yeah. You know, so, I mean, that doesn't preclude anything. Yeah, um, yeah. I never, never heard about him being a misogynist, but I guess it wouldn't <laughs> surprise me. I mean, it, it popped up, like, I think once in the research, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think, I think he was, like I said, I think he was a deeply complicated man. And I think he was somebody who was struggling with the loss of a sense that was imperative to his work. Right. And I don't know how I mean, one I'm, copes with that. Yeah, like I'm trying to think me as a writer, like what the, I guess the equivalent would be going blind. But like that would be like deeply traumatizing <laughs> to me. Yeah. You know, yeah. not just because I'm mean, obviously going blind, you know, that would be traumatic for anybody. But like, you know, I'm just thinking about like my ability to type being taken away, like, right. And to read, you know, yeah. I mean, obviously we have audiobooks and stuff, but like it just seems like, 
I can just kind of relate to that, to just how like the depression that that would cause. Yeah. Uh, years ago, years and years and years ago, I was having some, okay. So just a little bit about me. I was a classically trained singer. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was, I was what was classified as a lyric or a lyrical soprano. And I had started to lose some of my top notes. And so I went to an ENT, ear, nose and throat doctor here in town Mm -hmm. who basically told me (laughs) that I had a weak voice that I should Mm. not count on having any type of profession where I would sing or speak. And when I told him when I was like, "Um, I'm an actor, he was like, you need to look for a different profession. Okay, first, fuck (laughs) (laughs) Fuck that right in the face. Yeah, I obviously did not lose my voice. Um. <laughs> yeah, and, and for those of you guys who have not experienced it, I mean, you have not seen karaoke done right until you've seen Amelia <laughs> do it. Thank you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but I remember in the days after that, it was it was a bad time. It was a oh, really I, bad time. I think you've told me that. And yeah, I can't even imagine. Mm-hmm. And thankfully I reached out to my wonderful vocal coach, uh, an incredible woman who passed away a few years ago, but I hadn't taken lessons with her in a, like a decade. Mm-hmm. And I contacted her and I said, I just went to this doctor and this is what this doctor said to me. And she was like, Nope, I have a specialist in Philadelphia. I'm going to call him. We're going to get you in, get to Philadelphia. Yeah. And I got to Philadelphia. My appointment with this doctor took all day. Wow. Yeah. Like it was an in-depth. The guy was, he was an ENT, but he specialized in, in the voice. Okay. And like world-renowned singers go to this guy. Okay. And I did the appointment with him and he was like, look, this is what's going on. You've got some heartburn. (laughs) So I'm going to give you a prescription for some like heartburn medication. Take that, rest your voice, be good to it. Like you're not being real great to it right now. So be better to it. And you know, and you'll be fine. And if you don't get those top notes back, that's fine. Unless you're trying to become an opera singer. And I was like, no, I'm not. And he was like, you're fine. So let me just reiterate to that first doctor, fuck that guy right in the face. Also, yeah. Also just a good reminder to like, you can always get a second opinion, especially if you, if you are a woman, if you are a woman from like a vulnerable community or a marginalized Mm -hmm. community or a human being from a marginalized community, you can always get a second opinion. If you feel that you are not being listened to, if you feel that you're not getting good medical advice, you can Mm -hmm. always go and find more. And don't stop until you get a doctor that you feel is really listening to you. This is twice now that I've had, that I've talked in the podcast about having the fortunate circumstance of finding doctors who really wanted to help me. Um, And it's an important thing. So I'm just, I'm just thinking about this first. I I can't get over the first doctor. I know here you are saying I'm an actor and I'm a singer and he, and like his only response is find a different job. Yeah. Like that, like just, just the lack of compassion. Yeah. The and lack I was of like, okay, let's see if we can fix. It's just like, like you were simply a problem to check off of a clipboard for him. Yeah. So he can move on with his day and yep. he didn't really care if he was potentially ruining your life. Like, yeah. Like I, that that's fucking terrible. 
Yeah. You know, I came home in tears, obviously, yeah, just like, like despondent. And my parents ended up telling my brothers what was going on. And like, they were like, they sent me cards. My, uh, she wasn't my sister-in-law at the time, but she became my sister-in-law later. I like, I think she sent me flowers and stuff. Like everybody was, and everybody was like, fuck yeah. that fucking doctor. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, you know, and, and then I went on to, as a matter of fact, go and do the thing. And now I own a, now I, now I own a podcast and now I have a podcast where I talk all the time. I can't shut the fuck up. So <laughs> F you doctor number one. Um, and you know, don't give up on your dreams. Yeah. That, that's a good note to end it on. <laughs> you bet. <laughs> All uh, right. Well, thanks, guys. So, as always, be sure to rate, review, subscribe, do all the things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And stay weird, stay curious, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. So, listen, friends, we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing. <laughs>